going to start this message off with a question for you. Who coined the phrase, I don't get no respect? That's right. I guess you probably had to have been born maybe a little uh, later than the last 20 years. But Rodney Dangerfield gets the credit for I don't get no respect. And what makes his humor really so funny is because men, more than anything, want respect. Am I right, guys? We want respect? I mean, it's biblical, in the case if you ever wondered. It is truly biblical. There's a big portion of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5 that talks about um, a husband and a wife and what's important to them. And it ends with verse 33 where it says that the man um, should love his wife as himself. I think we have that Scripture we can bring up here. The man loves his wife uh, as himself, and the wife should do this to her husband. Respect. Respect her husband. Now, the title of this message, you're going to love this, it's the most coined phrase of all Father's Day, all right, all the Father's Days. It's the man, it's the myth, it's the legend, right? I mean, that is something that we say all the time, and the the reason why men tend to light up when they hear that phrase, if someone calls them that, is because it sort of is like endearing, right? Like, hey... It's respect. Like, we respect you. You're the man. You're the myth. You're the legend. Right? I mean, that is what we want. Now, the question is, men, are you deserving of that title? And if you are not a father yet, or, 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 or maybe you won't be a father, but still the same, will you deserve this title? It tends to be kind of reserved for someone who is a little bit older, Right? You don't become a legend when you're, you know, 10 or 12. But as you get older, you can become a legend, the man, the myth, right? So how do you become this? How do you make sure that at the end of your life, people aren't going to scoff when they say the man, the myth, the legend. They're going to say, yeah, it's the man, it's the myth, it's the legend, right? How do you know? Well, I would love to share the answer to that with you, and I know you don't want my opinion, and I know you don't want the majority's opinion. I know you came here to hear God's opinion on this subject, and what does it take to be the man, the myth, the legend? And you know what? It's crazy, but 2 Corinthians was your reading this week, and it just so happens that 2 Corinthians has the answer for us. Isn't that amazing? I, I kind of, you know... Um, Drew the bullseye after I threw the dart. Sorry about that. But uh, we're going to hit the bullseye today with this message in uh, 2 Corinthians. So we're going to get into God's Word. I pray that God's Word would touch your heart today, that you would learn. It would not just teach you, uh, inform you, but it would actually transform you and that you would actually come out of this um, changed and that it would, it would um, bless you in a major way. So um, first of all... Um, when uh, we, we, we begin with, what does it mean to be the man? All right, everybody wants to be the man. Um, I'm going to tell you a word here that is probably not ever used in the, uh, out of all the words I could have used to describe what it means to be the man, you wouldn't ever think I would say this next word, and that is vulnerable. And I'm telling you that men, it's okay to be vulnerable. It doesn't mean that you are weak. 
And you need to understand that right off the bat. To be vulnerable doesn't mean you are weak. Now, until I really dove into 2 Corinthians and studied it, I didn't realize, I don't think before, it's not a book that I kind of read that often, um, but when I really studied it this week, I realized, man, the Apostle Paul, who wrote it to the church in Corinth, was being extremely vulnerable. I mean, he was just laying it out there, and he was letting people understand, especially this church, that he has struggles as a man. You see, that's what I think is, is attractive more than anything, is that when we are vulnerable as men, when we are sincere and honest that we are not perfect, right, that we can stop and ask for directions, <laughs> as some never do, right? But being vulnerable is a way of saying, listen, I struggle. I have struggles. And I want to share with you, I want you to see in 2 Corinthians, and you've probably already read it, because a lot of you are reading the Bible in a year with me. And um, if you haven't read it, go ahead and read it again, and you're going to realize, man, he did struggle. Paul struggled. Now, um, to be vulnerable uh, oftentimes we're a little bit afraid of what might happen if we are. I know pastors are a little bit hesitant to be vulnerable because sheep bite hard, all right? Pastors don't like to be vulnerable for that reason, but we need to be honest. First of all, we see right off the bat that Paul says to this church in Corinth, now this is the second letter, possibly even um, a third or fourth letter. There, 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 we have First and Second Corinthians, but um, history and, and scholars see that there's possibly other letters um, that, that have been written. So Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 1.9, he says, basically, I almost died. Like, I, I, I've been through a lot, and I almost died. He says in verse 9, we felt we received the sentence of death, but it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who actually raises the dead. Second, he says, I um, pleaded for your prayers. Paul couldn't live without prayers. He says in verse 11 of chapter 1, you must help me by praying for me. So many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through your prayers. Paul struggled and he needed prayer to continue on. I need prayer. Do you need prayer? Raise your hand if you need prayer. Someone praying for you. Yes, we must pray for one another. Pray for me as your pastor. Pray for our church leaders. Pray for our dads who need to be spiritual leaders of their home. Pray for them to do that, to take that next step in their faith and to grow closer to God and into his image. We need prayer. Thirdly, Paul says, I struggle with coming back to see you because of his first letter to them. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you guys. Verse 4, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart. This was not an easy letter that he wrote to them. He says, I had many tears when I wrote it. I didn't want to cause you pain. I just wanted you to know the abundant love that I have for you. This is vulnerability right here. He's being vulnerable. What was 1 Corinthians all about? If you've read it before, you know. This was a scathing letter of rebuke. This was, hey, you're a great church. You got a lot of gifts, but you're messing up big time, man. That's what he wrote to him, basically, in a nutshell. 1 Corinthians. 
you're a great church, you've got gifts, but you're really screwing it up. You're not acting like a Christian is supposed to act. He says in verse 8, I made you grieve with my letter. I do not regret that. I did at one point before, but I see the letter actually worked. It grieved you only for a while. And then he says in verse 10, what does godly grief do? Not worldly grief. What does godly grief do? It produces repentance, turning away from that action, that that activity, that way of living. And he says, worldly grief will produce death, but godly grief produces repentance, which leads to salvation. A painful letter caused suffering for Paul because he wrote it to them and he knew what was going to happen when they got it. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever written a letter to someone or sent an email or a text? And you just knew, man, when they read that letter, look out. It was going to hurt. It was going to hurt you. It was going to hurt them. But it needed to be said, right? That's what Paul, that's what happened in 1 Corinthians. But here's the best part. The letter worked. They changed their ways. They actually repented. They turned from what they were doing. And Paul did, I think, ultimately what many church leaders are afraid to do today. Many pastors are afraid to do what Jesus called church discipline. And church, he laid it out. Jesus taught how to do church discipline. You know, you go to them one-on-one. If they don't respond, you take the church elders with you and so on and so forth. But here's the thing. If you let sin slide... It divides. If you let it slide, it will divide. Sin is a problem. It's a problem in churches. And you've got to have leaders who are willing to step up and say, listen, you can't do that. Because here's the thing Paul understood very clearly. He says in verse 11, he follows it up with this statement. Listen to this. He says, we're not going to be outwitted by Satan. He We are not ignorant of his designs. What does Satan want to have happen in churches? Divide, 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 divide. Bicker, argue, because you do communion this way, but you should do it this way. Right? Well, we we believe we got to be tolerant of this. We got to be okay with that. Liberal liberalness when it comes to sin. And Paul says, No, I wasn't going to let that happen. I wrote this letter. I know it hurt, but you know what? It worked. Paul struggled with that. He was being vulnerable. Fourthly, Paul struggles with loneliness. Man, ministers struggle with loneliness many times. He says in verse 13, 2 Corinthians 2, 13, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus. There's a little letter that he wrote to Titus that we'll get to. So I took leave and I went on to Macedonia. He says later on in his letter in chapter 7 of verse 6, but God eventually comforted me because Titus came. And here's the cool part. Where did he come from? He came from Corinth. He came from this church. It says in verse 13, we are comforted besides our own comfort. We rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because Titus was refreshed in his spirit by you guys. You encouraged Titus, and Titus encouraged me. Because sometimes ministry can be really lonely. Heck, I really believe as a Christian man, you are such the minority in our society today. 
I'm not talking about just someone who says, yeah, I'm a Christian because I show up for church every once in a while. I'm talking about being a Christian who walks the walk and doesn't just talk the talk. You're a man of God, and you are walking and you are leading your family. We're the minority. Am I right, man? There's not a lot out there. And sometimes that feels lonely. And we need each other to sharpen one another, as the proverb tells us. As iron sharpens iron. And as the common saying is, teamwork makes the dream work. Right? You've heard that one before. Teamwork makes the dream work, and we need to come together as a team, men. Fifthly, Paul asks for financial support. Wow, talk about being vulnerable here. Men don't like to ask for help. I joke, they don't like even ask for directions, let alone ask for money from someone else. Now, Paul wasn't asking for himself. There were, there were Christians in Jerusalem that were really struggling financially, and they had made a commitment to church in Corinth a year prior that they were going to give a, a donation to the churches, uh, to, the, to the Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul is, is bringing that to their attention, and he's, and he's asking them, and in chapter 8 and 9 is all about giving, and most of the time if you see any kind of um, teaching on, on giving to the Lord, you'll see it come from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. I bring to you, your attention just two verses from that. Um, the Macedonian church, Paul, by the way, says, gave unbelievably beyond their means. I mean, they probably gave up the Starbucks and uh, the going out to eat and the toys and all of that so that they could help others. And here he says in verse 7, you church in Corinth excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you. But he says, see that you excel in this act of grace also, this act of giving. And then the most popular verse of of all of forgiving. Chapter 9, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. I'm never going to stand on this stage and guilt you into giving like we see in so many other churches, but God loves a cheerful giver. And he says, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. I tell you, men are constantly concerned with their finances. Can I get an amen, men? (laughs) We're always talking about it. I get together with my dad every so often. He's on the other side of town, and it will not take but an hour or two before somehow we come around to talking about money. All right? It just happens. That's what we do. Because I feel that as men, there's something built in us that we need to take care of our families. Like, we want to take care of our families, and that requires money. And so we end up talking about it a lot and, and thinking about it and all that kind of stuff. But here... Paul's being real vulnerable, and he's saying, listen, I need you to give. You said you were going to give. Now get out your wallet, get out the checkbook, and write the check, man. You were going to do it. You need to do it. It's for the Lord's work. And here we are. I see a a teaching for all of us as Christians. You know, Christians uh, um, many times are, are committed to the Lord. They pray and they read their Bible, and they come to church faithfully, do all of these church, these spiritual disciplines, if you will, faithfully, and then yet when it comes to their money, they hold on to it like the Grinch. you got to give. You reap what you sow. 
That's the lesson that we have here. And I'm going to tell you something. If you give in this church, we are going to use it to reach men and women and children for the gospel. And here's the best part. Research shows that if you get dad in church, you get the whole family. We need dads to be in church because next to them will be the whole family. We need that. we got to reach men. And right now we have an outreach budget that's not very much. But it can grow. And we can reach more when we give faithfully. Paul finally shares how much he suffered in life in general. I mean, he went through a lot physically. Uh, I have to read it because um, of the last verse in it. But, I, I mean, you've got to understand, here's a man who had gone on a lot of mission trips around the Mediterranean Sea, and he had started these churches in Ephesus and Corinth and right, Philippi and all these places, and every time he went into a new city, he never knew what was going to happen. Right? I mean, he could go in there and he could, the gospel could be received and he could teach and preach, and, but then he also could get, you know, stoned. And I'm not talking about with grass. I'm talking about with stones, like real stones, <laughs> like killed. This is what he says, verse 18. Many boast according to the flesh, so I'll boast hesitantly. Verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater laborers, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times he received at the hands of the Jews, his own people, 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day drifting at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and robbers and his own people and the Gentiles, in the city, out in the wilderness, at sea, anywhere he went, he was in danger, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold, exposed, all of that. And here's my favorite verse. Apart from all of that, I have this constant daily anxiety for you churches. The churches that he started, the churches that he preached in, the churches that he encouraged and wrote letters to, he was just constantly thinking about them and praying for them. Talk about being vulnerable. But i got to tell you, vulnerability is studly here. It's attractive. It's what makes you the man if you're vulnerable, if you share your struggles. Let's move on to the myth. The myth. What makes you the myth? Well, how many of you have seen the movie The Sandlot? A classic. If you haven't seen it, it's a bunch of kids playing baseball in a sandlot. And uh, at the outfield, there is a fence, a privacy fence. And um, they know if they hit a home run and that ball goes over the fence, they're never going to get it back because behind that fence is the beast. The beast is behind that fence, and children that go over that fence are eaten whole by the beast. They will not go over there. They are deathly afraid of going over that fence because of the beast. Well, the beast is a myth. They come out, right? I hate to spoil it for you if you haven't seen the movie, but the beast is just an English mastiff named Hercules. It's just a dog that likes baseballs and slobbers all over them, right? Right? 
Myths, all right, myths. Myths are what people build up in their minds when they don't have enough information. That's what a myth is. Stuff we build up in our minds, we put all these things together in our mind because we don't have enough information. Are you guarded so much so you keep to yourself that no one really knows you? Because if that's you, if that's how you are, guess what? People are developing myths about you. And they could be true, and they might not be true. See, there was a myth about Paul. He says, I know what the myth is. Chapter 10, verse 10. What do they say about me? His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence, it's weak. And his speech of no account. They're saying, Paul's got lots of bark, but no bite. He's a puny man, and he's a terrible preacher. That's what they said about him. Now, the enemies of Paul, the false teachers that are prevalent, they wanted everybody to believe this about Paul, this myth, if you will. And Paul has to deal with this myth. The kicker is, he had been to Corinth for a year and a half. They knew him. They knew his bark matched his bite. But he had not been there in a while, so now they started to believe it. Remember the Wizard of Oz, right? The Wizard of Oz. Was he a great and powerful wizard like all of Oz believed? No. He was a man behind a curtain pulling levers. Right? You don't want to be that man. Get out from that curtain. Be transparent. You see, you need to dispel the myth. If you've been a person that's been guarded and you're not transparent... People need to know you. I mean, how many times have you been to, to a funeral or you've heard about a man who nobody knew? Like they just hid in their cave their whole life. They come home from work, they go down to the basement, and they hide in their man cave, and nobody ever really gets to know them. What a tragedy that is. If you want to dispel the myth about you, you need to be transparent. Paul was transparent with his letters. In fact, he actually says in in, uh, chapter 10, he points out, dispelling the myth about him, this is really important, if you read closely, you see it, he says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, that I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. He's bringing up that myth, right? But he says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness, with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. He goes on to say that this is really important when it comes to spiritual warfare, if you're dealing with that at all. He says, we walk, yes, according to the flesh, but we are not waging war that way. Right? The weapons of warfare are not fleshly. Right? They have divine power to, just to destroy strongholds. In verse 5 of love, we destroy arguments, How do we do that? And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God by taking that lie, that stinking thinking, and making it obedient to Christ. Measuring it up with the word of God. Paul's bark was his bite. He clears the myth up. And he understood the enemy. The enemy was real. The enemy wants to divide churches. It wants to bury Christians because he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Paul was also transparent about 
his agenda. And by the way, think about this. The enemy has been winning for a long time in the Christian church. You know how I know that? Because there's over 20,000 different denominations of the Christian church. Denominations, I call them divisions. At some point, there was a division, a divide in a church. Now we're the blank, blank, blank Baptist, or the blank, blank, blank Pentecostal, right? Division. How many churches did Jesus start? One. One. That's it. So the enemy has been winning. Paul was transparent about his agenda. He wasn't called into the ministry to make a living. He was called to share the good news. I love these verses, and I know you do too. Chapter 20 of verse 5. We are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's right. The old has gone, the new has come. And then in verse 3 of chapter 6, he says, we're not putting any obstacles in anybody's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. Transparency across the board. Paul was being totally transparent. A godly man will prove a myth, true or not true, by being transparent. Can you do that, men? Thirdly, finally, what makes a man the legend? Right? We love that word, the legend. The legend. I got to tell you, when I was in my teens and my 20s, basketball was life. I mean, it was everything to me. I love playing. I love coaching. And uh, we had a good circle of guys that we hung out with, that we played and coached, and we would tell stories most guys do, right? But there were stories about a particular individual in our group that we knew. They actually went to the same high school that I went to, Lakeshore. He was a legend. He had a stellar college career in which he played against Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and stole the show. He got drafted by the NBA, never actually played the NBA, but this man was a legend. And it wasn't even the stories about playing against Larry Bird and Magic Johnson that were amazing. It were the other stories that we heard throughout high school and so on and so forth. And we just love hearing stories about this guy. He was a legend. That's what makes a legend. Stories. And the whole New Testament is filled with stories about Paul. Because Paul was a legend. But there was one in particular story that Paul tells himself in the third person that's interesting. He says in chapter, two, uh, chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, I know a man, talking third person here, who in Christ 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. He heard things that cannot be told. Man cannot utter. Paul got a glimpse of heaven, folks. He got a supernatural glimpse of his eternal resting place. And he couldn't tell anybody about it. Now that would puff a man up with so much pride, right? So what happens? Paul says in verse 7, to keep from becoming conceited because of this surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given in my flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. A thorn, like a splinter. You ever get a splinter? And if you bump it, it's like hurts, right? This was Paul. He had this annoying, nagging thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it is, 
But he asked God three times, will you have it removed from me? But God said in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, I'll boast then all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In chapter, or verse 10, uh, uh, he says, for the sake of Christ, I am content, not many of us can say this, with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, because when I'm weak, then I am, you know the rest, strong. That's right. Paul learned to live with this nagging thorn in the flesh the rest of his life with content, because when he was weak, he was strong. Paul was a legend. A legend. What's your story? We know Paul's story, but what's your story? What story will people tell about you? This Monday, I was at a funeral for a man who was in his 90s when he died. I was supporting a member. I did not know the man. I was supporting a member who had been a member of our church a long time ago and since moved to Texas. And he was, um, came up for the funeral, and I supported him. And he came to church last week. He's, you might have met him. Um, but his brother spoke at the funeral about their dad. And the very first thing he said, I'd never heard before at a funeral. But he came right out and said, you know what? With tears in his eyes, I'm really sad. Because I don't think my dad's in heaven. Now he went on to say that his dad was a really great guy. He he taught him a great work ethic. He treated his mom very well. They went on these great camping trips every August. So he was this all-around good guy. But he literally said, I never heard my dad talk about Jesus. Great father. But his story did not have a happy ending. What's your story? What's your story, man? You know, every child automatically looks at their dad like he's a legend, a superhero. You don't have to have any superpowers, dads. Your kids think you are amazing until you prove them wrong. What's your story? What's your story? It's really great what Paul says in uh, one of the last verses here. I wonder how your story is, is coming along. Personally, I want my kids to tell others that I lived my life for Jesus. That I followed God with all my heart. That I lived a life of purpose and I helped other people follow Jesus. And I don't think it's ever too late. In fact, that thief on the cross next to Jesus, where's he at? The one who believed that Jesus was God. He's in heaven. It's never too late to change your story. What's your story? Paul says here, examine yourselves. He says, to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Or don't you realize this about yourselves? Jesus is in you unless you fail the test. This is an interesting test here because you you test yourself. You give it to yourself. You look in the mirror and you say, do I have genuine faith? And if you can look in the mirror, you can have a conversation with God and say, I have genuine faith in you, God. I walk by faith, not by sight. Then keep 
building your story. Keep living out your story, because your story is his story. But if you look in the mirror and you're failing the test, it's not too late to change your story. Make your story his story. What a difference that will make in the lives of the people around you in your children. If you want to be the man, the myth, the legend, you need to be vulnerable, you need to be transparent, and you need to make your story his story. The last verse in this letter is one you know, probably some of you by heart, because I've been saying it since the beginning. When I first became a pastor, Tony said, you need a benediction. When you say, dismiss everyone, you need to give them a benediction. And so I prayed about it, and I said, God, I want to give a benediction that sends everyone away thinking about you. And he put on my heart that you need to give a benediction that tells them, God, I am the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I chose 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you.